All right, all right, all right. <clears throat> Let's get fired up here. Maximum freedom. Read. Stay on target. Maximum Stay on target. Maximum Read Rothbard. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the next episode of the Actual Anarchy Podcast, episode 45, where we're going to talk about the ghost in the darkness. And you can find this episode at actualanarchy.com slash 45. This is the show where we talk about movies from a Rothbardian anarcho-capitalist perspective. We analyze it, the morality, the economics, and all the rest. And you can get more of this show and a few other libertarian podcasts at libertarianunion.com, which is a group of us podcasters who have joined together to create a one-size-fits-all, throw it all against the wall, and get as much content as you'd like, foreign policy focus, actual anarchy, Libertarianism for Normal People, Battle for Liberty, uh, Don't Waste Your Hate, Liberty Weekly, and a few other choice choice podcasts at Liberty or LibertarianUnion.com. Uh, so I think uh, Robert has chimed in. And uh, Robert, this is Sam. Uh, and how should we refer to you, Sam? Uh, Sam works um, living country in the city. Uh, that's the podcast, the Instagram handle, the website, all of that. It's just living country in the city. Uh, a lot of people have taken to calling me Country Sam. Um, that kind of started actually at my latest job. All right, Country which, Sam works, or D and D nerd is good. There we go. That also, I've been I've been called nerd quite a bit as well in my life. D and D nerd, hunting nerd, anything I'm a nerd about, I I have a, I have this habit of just like going all in. Like there's zero, there's not like oh I'm gonna see if I like this before I'm like no I'm gonna dive in head first and hope I don't you know snap my spine on a rock under the water here. But yeah. <laughs> hopefully it's deep enough. So, how are you doing, Robert? How are you? What's going on, man? I'm doing great, man. Uh, yeah, I've just been busy. Sorry I'm late. I didn't realize that it had already ticked over to 8 o'clock. I, um, I knew it was happening, <laughs> and I just got into what I was doing. So I'm terribly offended. I'm absolutely horrified and offended right now. I'm sorry you had to talk to Daniel for however long you've been talking to him all by yourself. He can be <laughs> horrific. I am horrific, and, and you're a... A time rape apologist or something. I, I don't know. What, what's some patriarchy I'm, word I can use against you for stealing? Uh, I, did, or, I, did, I did rape you with, yeah, with having to wait for me. It's, so. You know what? It's your time privilege is what it is. It's, <laughs> I'm, I'm sick of your time privilege. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Patriarchy. Misogyny. Yep. You know, albeit, albeit who are we really to define what time is to him? I mean, you know, he could identify as being on time. Oh, that's a good point. <laughs> so, you know, we have to be careful. Yeah. So what time do you feel it is, Robert? <laughs> I feel I'm early, and uh, you guys are just super early, and I don't know why. But what? Uh, tell me, Sam, I don't know anything about you, so if you could just uh, tell me what – I know you just mentioned <laughs> that you do a whole bunch of different shit, and you have a podcast. What's your podcast about? Yeah, so the podcast is called Living Country in the City. Um Really, what it all what it all started out as is I like I said I I have this huge variety of interests and oh whoa it's popping up on the screen um <laughs> I have this huge variety of interests and and uh, lately uh, that has taken me into hunting and that's become a, a very serious passion 
but it also involved um, country music and going out and shooting my bow and uh, going horseback riding. And But the thing is, I live in the middle of Los Angeles, and it's not exactly a place super conducive to those hobbies, if you will. Um, and I had a lot of friends that would like see me post on, on my personal Instagram. They'd you know, see me line dancing or see me shooting my bow, and they, I'd, I'd constantly get messages from me like, hey, I didn't know you could do that. Where do you do that? Tell me about it, all this stuff. And so I'd kind of give them the rundown, and uh, I started thinking about it. I'm like, you know, I should, like, put something together to just kind of catalog what I'm doing just so people have access to it. And so I kind of started an Instagram, and, you know, I started putting together this website, um, just fooling around. The whole idea was just do something local that people could access. And I'm like, well, what would be a good name? And everything good was taken. I already purchased, uh, uh, already purchased online, and pretty much everything was being sat on, which is just all the more insulting when you're buying domains, <laughs> says the guy who owns 35 of them. Um, yeah, but, right, and sitting on uh, 34 of them. Yeah. Ugh. At least I'll mine forward to my own website. Like, they're just, they're additional inlets. They're being used uh, for access, but that's a whole other story. Um, Easy I, that, access, baby. Well, that, uh, that's not too bad. We have a, I have a, I don't know, I have a whole homesteading argument uh, for and against that. I'm on both sides of the argument with uh, domain purchases, but that's a whole different topic for a different podcast, I'd imagine. <laughs> um, but yeah, so, you know, I bought, I, I found Living Country in the City. It was about as on the nose as I could make it. Um, and yeah, really, it just kind of evolved. I, I originally planned for it to just be a blog. Um, I'd kind of started listening to Tom Woods at the same time. You know, I, I was a libertarian. I was trying to learn a bit more about, about that and about economics and things like that. And I was talking to a buddy of mine, Vito, uh, who's, uh, I don't know if he's officially started his own podcast, but uh, he's, uh, he started an economics page and it's killing me. Oh, Vito Power. Heh, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, but uh, my buddy Vito, he told me about Tom Woods. He's like, no, if you want to listen, if you you want a good podcast, you want to listen to Tom Woods. Because I think I I think I was listening to like I don't know the the Cato podcast, and I didn't you know I didn't know anything. Um, I didn't know any better, so I was listening to like Cato, and I think I was listening to the uh, uh, Free Thoughts, and I was like, you know, these are good, but it's 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 over my head. They're referencing these people. I'm like, I I recognize the name. I'm like, who's this Rothbard guy though? You know. These Rothbard and Mises and Hayek and all these people. I'm like, I, I'm recognizing the names, but I just didn't know anything. So I was trying to learn more. He turned me on to Tom Woods. And so I started listening to Tom Woods at the same time. And this story is getting really long. Um, <laughs> but uh, so I started getting interested in podcasting at the same time as I was making this site, you know, because Tom is very big on, hey, you know, this is how I, how I do it. You know, if you want to start your own podcast, you know, I'm, you guys obviously know. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, I tried blogging. That wasn't working, but I figured I could talk, um, obviously, a lot. I like to talk a lot. And so after spending a year trying to write blogs and only managing to, I think, knock out about four, uh, I swapped over to uh, podcasting. And, you know, I think I started February of this year, and I just recorded episode 43, I want to think. I think something like that. Um, so you're doing, like, twice a week. Yeah, so you're... That was the, well, originally I wanted to start once a week, and, I, and that's what I was doing. Uh, I ended up going to a couple of uh, expos and got just a ton of content that was super relevant at the time, and I didn't want it to uh, go stale, so I kind of switched to twice a week, and then, then I, would, I would be good for like two weeks, then I'd run out of content for a whole week, and so I, now I'm back to, to doing about once a week uh, until I get maybe enough content to release twice a week and be at least a month ahead. So that's the goal, because I take so what, a long time to get content out. 
So, I mean, that was an excellent answer, but I don't think you actually answered my question. I mean, I was asking <laughs> what your podcast is about. Oh, yeah. Well, so it's the idea was originally that it was just going to be about country stuff, if you will. So country music, line dancing, horseback riding, archery, uh, shooting guns, hunting. Um, and it started out like that. I interviewed some country artists at the beginning. Uh, then I started getting into hunting a little bit more, talking to, talking to other hunters. And I uh, honestly, it came down to after like the first couple episodes, it just turned into a hunting podcast. Um, okay. A lot of it, a lot of it was just because people in the hunting industry, compared to say like uh, even the gun culture, that which there's a lot of overlap, but. Uh, the hunting industry versus, say, the country music industry, the the big folks, the celebrities, if you will, are a lot more accessible. Um, they are they don't consider themselves celebrities. They almost get embarrassed when you are kind of like, oh my gosh, it's so good to meet you. You know, I uh, I I follow you online or whatever. You know, I I love what you do, and they're they're kind of like, oh, this is so awkward for me. You know, <laughs> yeah. I mean, super humble, super accessible people, and so I've gotten to do especially at these expos, I've gotten to do some fantastic interviews, like some interviews that I look at and I'm just like, holy crap, I can't believe I got to talk to so-and-so. Um, there's been a couple interviews recently. I'm not sure if you guys have ever had this talking with people where you start to like listen to someone talk for a while. And, you know, I do it because I want to learn from these people. And uh, that's kind of my my goal. I just happen to also be sharing our conversations with everyone else. But I'll get to a point where I'll, I'll be like really into what someone's saying and I'll just be sit and I'll I'll be a fan of of them for a minute, but then they'll finish, and all of a sudden there's this really dead awkward silence for a long time that I'm like, oh crap, I'm interviewing this person. They're not just like I'm not listening to a podcast right now. <laughs> so I've had to I've had to edit out some silences, but yeah, long story short, very long story uh, short, um, it's a hunting podcast <laughs> um, where I talk about I focus on new hunters, people that may not know as much or maybe from the city like myself and want to get into hunting but kind of feel oh there's a lot to learn it's super intimidating because what I'm passionate about is backcountry hunting which there's a lot more to it necessarily I mean I'm I, I love hunting in any fashion but it's a little different than sitting in a tree stand over a over a corn feeder and waiting for a waiting for a deer to come walking up so slightly slightly different a little more involved uh, but I focus on people new new to the industry who are interested in it right on and and are you bow hunting or are you using a rifle? Uh, I'm not opposed to either. My passion is bow hunting, um, and I would I would prefer to go bow hunting over anything. But uh, you know, if somebody has like a once, if somebody's giving me a once in a lifetime rifle tag, or I get a chance just to go out, and I I'm super passionate about hunting in general. So that's um, that's that's really it. I mean, I like I said, I prefer bow hunting, but I will take hunting over not hunting any day. <laughs> Yeah, Robert's you got, have to deal uh, with, uh, I was just going to mention, Robert's got some uh, bow, bow staff skills, bow hunting skills a little bit. You've been getting into that in the last year or two, right? Just just target shooting. I, I, I've i never actually shot at anything. But Are I you... deer that by my house all the time. <laughs> I guess I could just take one down. Uh, well, you gotta you got to do it all nice and legal. Like, you gotta get the got to get a license and tags. Or else well, the, that's uh... exactly my question I was just about to ask you, is what kind of regulations are you having to deal with down in uh, Los Angeles? So that's the thing. It's actually with with the regulations as far as hunting, um, it's run by it is. Yes, it's run by the government, but it's run by state governments, which, you know, is always preferable to federal. I mean, you know, it'd be nicer if it was run by, you know, obviously if it was run by county or it'd be even better if it was run locally, you know, each individual. But um, it's run by state governments. What it is, is it's managed by biologists. So. 
what it comes down to, I feel a little more comfortable with this system as far as bureaucracy goes, just because at least it's managed by, typically these biologists are also hunters, um, and their goal is to maximize opportunities for a, a species. Um, so, you know, they're looking and they're saying like, okay, we want elk in California to survive, uh, but we also want to maximize opportunities for hunting. So uh, their goal is to balance that out. Um, and pretty much it's like that across states. It's, all, it's, uh, it's pretty universal. The specifics are a little bit different. But in California, there's actually a surprising amount of hunters, but there's just not a lot of tags uh, available. So, you know, you have to buy a hunting license, you go through your hunter safety course, so you get your license and says, okay, I'm allowed to hunt. Um, still can't shoot an animal. I mean, you, there's certain things you can shoot, like coyotes and rabbits and crap like that, but uh, to actually be able to go hunt a big game animal, um, you have to apply for tags. Certain, certain uh, species, so more in-demand species that may not be as populated, you have to basically enter into a drawing. And there's, you know, I mean, this could be, a, like I said, this would be a three-hour podcast in and of itself, fully getting into it. But idea is, you know, you got 100 people that want to hunt elk. The biologists say, okay, for the species to survive, only, you know, three people can hunt elk. You all put in, three people get lucky, you know, and then the people that didn't, didn't get, they get what's called a point. So basically, the more points you have, the more likely each year you are to get a tag. Certain tags are just over-the-counter, meaning as many people as one can buy them, like black bear here in California, pretty much anyone can get a tag. Pig in California, pretty much anyone can get a tag. Uh, they're just so overpopulated that they're like, kill as many as you want. The more you kill, the better the balance of the species is going to do, because uh, bears and pig and a few other things are just super overpopulated out here. So that's kind of the how the regulations a little bit work, but... Cal California is, uh, surprisingly, there's a lot of hunters out here. Um, it's just definitely, let's just say there's a reason, uh, a lot of other places, governments, uh, call it a department of fish and game versus out here in California, they changed the name to department of fish and wildlife because they're here. They're not quite as supportive of the hunting culture as say a place like Montana or Idaho. So, yeah, interesting. It sounds like there's a fair amount of central planning going on and, uh, having experts kind of try to calculate and and figure this out, so there's there's a bit of a techno technocratic uh, uh, approach. It sounds like, but it's probably better given the constraints of not being able to have private property ownership, which would be the ideal mm -hmm. situation. At least they're just trying to manage it as responsibly as they can. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting, and you compare it to a place like Texas, where uh, most of these states is, and you know, this is where uh, this is where I probably turn into the world's worst libertarian, if we're being honest. Um, because I am a big fan of public land and hunting on public lands. Um, but then that's a whole, once again, a huge discussion. Uh, but you look at a place like Texas. And Texas is, I think, like nine, something ridiculous, like 96% private land. Um, and to go hunting out there, it's almost impossible, unless you just happen to know someone. Um, or it's just heinously expensive. It kind of depends because the because it is it is private land. So it's it's it has its benefits though because it's maintained. But then a lot of what you don't you don't get is that uh, is that wildlife. It's not really wildlife anymore. It's uh, it's cattle, if you will. And you know, for someone like me, like I said, this is where I turn into the world's worst libertarian because I I am passionate about wild animals and open spaces and I love it. So that's where I struggle with a solution. You know, I. Because my sounds heart, like, you know. Well, sounds like there's a market opportunity then to satisfy your desire. There, there definitely is. For an entrepreneur. Is. <laughs> there's a market opportunity for someone a lot smarter than me. I, 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 will, I will say that. Um, 
I'm just a I'm just a nerd with a with a bow that likes to run around in the mountains and uh, hurt both his knees. <laughs> yeah, Robert, I don't know if you know, you know this. He's he's laid up right now. He had uh, a hunting accident and he's just recovering from surgery right now. Yeah, I knee surgery on Monday. So uh, I am I have I have some very attractive compression nylons on right now. Um, they're super sexy, I have to say. I I might start sporting this look on a regular basis. Um, if you don't mind me asking, what what did you do? What happened? Did you fall or what? So what happened? There's no specific incident. I basically took way too much weight with me into the backcountry, um, and it's a little debatable exactly what happened because there was no specific incident. Like I didn't fall and you know slam my knee into something. Um, but uh, when they went in and they looked, it looks like the cartilage in my knee was there were some gouges in it, uh, and some of that could have been just over time, you know, that just happens in these sometimes. Uh, but what they think happened is, whether it happened on the trip or beforehand, those gouges then, with all of the weight, I had a 90-pound pack on my back, uh, and I was climbing through knee-deep snow over all this deadfall in the backcountry. And so the compression of the, of the extra weight on my knee it would compress my meniscus into that cartilage, and rotating on that then just would catch it in those grooves or in those crevices in the cartilage and just that's what tore my meniscus so I, uh, lateral meniscus tears on both sides it turns out yeah i'm cringing as, as you speak I, I i'm sensitive about my knees and, and <laughs> hearing about knee injuries is like one of my like uh pep uh, not pet peeves but like one of the things that like gets me right in the gut you know triggers yeah, you. that's your nails Triggered. on the chalkboard yeah totally totally I used to run uh, and train for marathons, and my knees would bother me from time to time and kind of flare up to where I couldn't even walk. And then as soon as I recovered enough to be able to, to walk again, I would start running again. So I, I, I would run till my knees would exhaust and then take a few days off and then do it again as soon as I could walk. It was, uh, it was a very stupid way to do it. I was a younger man at the time. <laughs> well, they, they said what I had is called uh, a five, I think, referring to some of the the things going on with the cartilage, they called it a five-mile tear, which means 90% of the time I'm good. Like, I can go for a two, three-mile hike, whatever, I can go running for a while, but they say typically for most people around the five-mile mark, that's when it starts bothering them because of that con consistent pressure. So I guess that's what I had. So it was probably kind of a similar thing where if I had pushed further, I would have realized it a lot sooner. But, you know, sometimes you're not going to put yourself through stress like that on a on a daily basis. I mean, a 90-pound pack, knee-deep snow, lots of deadfall. Um, over the course of the first three days, I think I did about 20 miles, somewhere in that vicinity. So, and it was gnarly. It was just gnarly backcountry. Like, I've, I've never seen forest so choked and just, that was cool. It was amazing, but uh, it was, it was tough. It was the hardest thing I've done in my life, for sure. Where were you going after? I was chasing elk, and there was not a single elk there. <laughs> <laughs> basically what had happened is uh, I went in and the, it had been around the 80s, 70s and 80s um, all week. So it was like super warm weather. And I'm like, well, shoot, okay, I'm going to go up to a nice high elevation where it's going to be cooler and the elk are still going to be there. You know, uh, they'll still be moving around a little bit. And so basically what happened is the day I went out, all of a sudden this winter storm blew in out of nowhere. No one expected it. Um, I had I'd seen that it might rain. And so I was like, oh, I'll pack some warmer clothes. But it was not prepared for this random snowstorm. So it pretty much was just dumping snow on me the entire time. And all the elk were like, screw this. We're going down to where it's warmer. And yeah. <laughs> So so I didn't even this is like it. a month you ago, got right? How much weight on your back? Uh, I had about 90 pounds, sadly. Uh, that was kind of a dumb maneuver on my part. Um, I got sick before the trip, 
And so I never got to, typically I load everything in my pack and then I start pulling stuff out that I won't need. Uh, I got sick before the pulling stuff out portion of the trip and kind of forgot to do that. So if you go out there and you got, you're like 20 miles in or I don't know how far you're going on a, on a trip and you, you take an elk down, what, what's your plan on getting it back? Uh, you quarter it in the field, uh, you load it up in your pack and you take about six trips out. Six trips back and forth? Yep, something like that. It you depends. can handle what? What's your max weight? Uh, usually you try and keep it 100 pounds or less. Um, so basically what I'd do is I'd quarter out the elk. Um, I would probably pack it back to wherever my I'd set up my camp hang the meat in a tree, um, okay. and then pack up my camp. Or, you know, just depending on what time it was, how long I thought it would take me, where I was, I'd either pack up my camp and as much meat as I could carry with me then, take that out, leave everything at the car. Uh, I had a trailer with um, with four 120-quart coolers waiting for me. Uh, but, you know, you take that back to the car, then you hike back in and load another 90 pounds of, 100 pounds of elk on your back and... And you walk out, and by the time you're done driving home, you'll uh, you'll have a freezer with enough meat for a good year. So Man. yeah, I imagine that takes amount of time to do all that, like a couple of days maybe. Uh, depending on by yourself, you by yourself it can, it definitely can. Um, and so that's always ever, a concern with the weather. You so. ever get back to your kill and find it scavenged? So I'm brand new at this. This was my first time out. Um, I had never done this before, but uh-huh. a lot of people definitely. That's one thing you do, especially in Idaho. Like, I wasn't too too close to the Montana border, but I was definitely on the Montana side of things. And there's a lot of grizzly activity over there. And so when you're coming back to your, you do a couple things. When you gut the animal, you take the gut pile and you move that as far away from, like, your main meat, where you're hanging your meat as possible. So you hope the bears will go after, they'll typically go after that gut pile first. Then, uh, you know, because they smell the fresh blood and the, the viscera and all that. And, yeah. um that's really, you know, what they want to dig into. That's the fresh stuff. Everything else, you know, you've cleaned most of the blood off of. It doesn't have, I mean, it definitely, it's, it's meat hanging in a tree. They'll, <laughs> they'll be interested, but they're going to go for the easy, easy pile first. Um, but yeah, when you come back, you know, you don't just kind of blindly walk into there. You know, you make a lot of noise coming in because they don't want anything to do with you initially. Um, right. You know, but you make a lot of noise coming in and you try and hang your meat in a spot where you can see it from a bit of a distance. So, you know, you pull up your binoculars, you start looking through them, making sure there's nothing around there. And But, yeah, that's actually the most dangerous part of the hunt, typically, is the pack is packing out the meat. That's when you are most likely to have to deal with uh, any possible, like, stuff like mountain lion attacks or, you know. Right. Did you, did you like that uh, foreshadowing right there? Huh? huh? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I can see why we have you on for this this movie. Yeah, that's right. Um, is, is that why you got that uh, the 1911? Is that a 45 that you carry with you? Uh, so that one, uh, that's not my carry gun. Um, I love that 1911. That's my baby. Um, but that thing just that thing just weighs 90 pounds in and of itself. Um, it's I'd, I'd probably also have better luck just beating a beating a bear over the head with it than actually hitting anything with my my shooting <laughs> skill. No, um, I carry a I carry a little. Um, a uh, little subcompact uh, Springfield uh, XD XD40. Um, that's that's my carry that's my carry pistol. It's just it's a lot lighter, a lot smaller. Uh, I'm able to keep it on my belt without adding too significantly much weight. But then yeah, I carry a lot of people will you know cut one or the other. Um, but I also carry bear spray as well. Uh, that's typically as things go more effective than bullets. Um, when you're stopping a bear, surprisingly, uh, but it's basically it's just the world's worst pepper spray, and it shoots out and 
hopefully it disorients the bear enough and causes them to run off. But Okay. I keep thinking about uh, that scene in The Great Outdoors where they shoot the bear in the ass and he's got like a bear ass. <laughs> and then they shoot him in the head and he's got like a bald head. <laughs> you know, you remember that movie, the John Candy one? It's, I, I remember the movie. I'm trying to remember the scene. Like, I remember the movie, and I remember there being a bear in it, but I'm trying to remember that specific scene. I'm going to have to look that one up. I'm always, I'm, like I said, I'm laid out right now, so I'm, I'm totally killing my Netflix queue at the moment. All right. Well, we'll have you back for that one, maybe, if, if you watch it and you see anything good in there. There we go. There we go. So uh, what do you say we, we start getting into talking about this movie, The Ghost in the Darkness, and we usually start out with reading a, a Google description and then laughing about how wrong it is because they usually are. <laughs> and then Sounds we'll, good. Uh, do the uh, overall, like maybe you can just describe, okay, in two minutes, what's the, what's the story that we're talking about? And then we'll get into some various scenes. Uh, Robert, are you feeling pretty good about uh, getting going, or, or do you have a few more questions for our guest, Cowboy Sam, or Country Sam? What do we call Country, you? Country, Country Sam. Sam. That'll work. Well, I mean, Sam, have you have you been bow hunting then? Um, so and did you actually shoot anything with a bow? I've yet to shoot anything with a bow. Um, okay. I've I've probably studied bow hunting and hunting more than just about anyone I know. Um, mm-hmm. I've sat in a tree stand for uh, about two weeks before. I mean, not straight, obviously, but uh, over the course of about two weeks. Um, and then, you know, I went on this hunt. I was out uh, before injuring myself for a few days. But, yeah, that's the, that's the extent of it. I've got a few more hunts planned up. Uh, hopefully going to be out in Arizona for a late-season hunt and then just chasing some, uh, some black bear and pig and some deer here around L.A. But hoping to, hoping to uh, not get completely skunked for this season. Okay, because I was going to ask about what kind of a range you feel comfortable <clears throat> shooting at with a bow. Because I practice mm-hmm. anywhere from 30 to 50 yards give or take, and then if I want to really test myself, I'll go out to around 80, 90 yards. But so are you shooting a compound a, bow? You know, a target. Yeah, compound. Okay. Yeah, with compound, honestly, my effective range, like, it, and it depends on what I'm shooting, you know, there's a slight size difference between, you know, a white-tailed deer and an elk. Um, you know, one's the size of a building, the other's the size, <laughs> you know, of a bicycle. Um, sure. But, uh, you know, for something like elk, uh, I'd say my effective range is about 60 yards with the compound. Um, kind of general rule of thumb is for practice, you want to pr- try and practice up to twice the distance that you imagine that you want to feel comfortable shooting at. So, you know, you want to shoot an elk at 50 yards. I mean, don't get me wrong. Like I do not practice out to 120 yards. I just don't have the sights or the range, uh, the range space for that. But, um, you know, they say if you want to become an expert, practice out to twice your effective range. But, uh, I do not do that. I, I practice wow. out to about 20 yards past my effective range. Mm, okay. Good answer. All right, I like it. <laughs> There's what you're supposed to do and what I'm realistic about doing. And so <laughs> I'm far from perfect, what can I say? And I'm you're aiming a, for the heart, I imagine, right? Yeah, you aim for the heart. I mean, you pretty much, you know, if you get if you get lungs, if you get heart, you know, you get heart, it's going to drop a lot quicker. Uh, you get like a double lung shot, it'll drop pretty quick, but you may have to just track it for a few hundred yards, something like that. Right. right. That's, that's the goal. I mean, you know, the... Just to give you an idea, I think probably the the the, the entire vital spot on like a deer, uh, you know, your basic like smaller white-tailed deer that kind of everyone's used to seeing, is all is not much bigger than just the heart on an elk. So I mean, like the heart on an elk is is just huge. It's like bigger than a it's like a a really really big grapefruit. Um, and then you've got the lungs past that. So you've got a good 
you've got a, a pretty decent sized target on an elk versus a whitetail, you know, you're probably hitting a little bit, you're needing to hit a, a bit smaller than a pie plate. Hmm. So, mm, pie. <laughs> <laughs> Daniel, go ahead and read the uh, description there, buddy. All right, let's get into this. Uh, the Ghost in the Darkness, 1996 thriller drama, one hour and 50 minutes. Got a 6.8 on the IMDb, and Roger Ebert hated this thing. Gave it one half of one star out of four. I used to, I thought he did a thumbs up, thumbs down, but Ooh. either way, uh, Rotten Tomatoes says 50%. However, Google users, 89% like this movie. A big thumbs up there from the Google users. And here is the description. Sir Robert Beaumont, played by Tom Wilkinson, is behind schedule on a railroad in Africa. Enlisting noted engineer John Henry Patterson, played by Val Kilmer, to write the ship, Beaumont expects results, and he wants them now, damn it. Uh, everything seems great until the crew discovers the mutilated corpse of the project's foreman, uh, Henry Sile, seemingly killed by a lion. After several more attacks, Patterson calls in famed hunter Charles Remington, played by Michael Douglas, who has finally met his match in The Bloodthirsty Lions. And that's the end of the description. I mean, yeah, not bad. Yeah, it's got to be short and gloss over some bits, but, I mean, right when they get there, there's already an attack. Yeah. Not that all of a sudden they're, oh my God, there's lions later on. That's not the case. As soon as he arrives, there's a there's a lion attack. And that's why they yeah. hate him and they blame him for it. Well, it's funny. It feels like they spend like the first 60% of the description talking about the first like 15 minutes of the movie. And, yeah. <laughs> and then everything else. I mean, I guess, yeah, a good majority of, of the movie is them hunting the lions. But uh, it, <laughs> there's no, you can say that in one sentence. But yeah. I was like, yeah, they're talking a lot about the, the one dude, and that's like the first two minutes of the movie that you're talking to Beaumont in, in that. But Yeah, oh. he, he seems like a pretty shitty dude. <laughs> I mean, there's some there's just some quotes, like, and I'm, you know, we'll get into those later, that he, he said those, and I'm like, I, I wrote them down just because he was such a big a-hole. It was like, it makes you wonder if, if he was actually like that, you know, because it's, it's a true story. That's the, that's, I gravitate, I love, I love uh, movies that are true stories. Even if they're completely dramatized, whatever it is, just something about them makes me enjoy them more because there's always that little bit in the back, like something, something here really happened, you know? Uh, right. Obviously it wasn't Val Kilmer, but you know, a guy can hope. Yeah, well, I gotta yeah, tell you, and they, this is our they completely second... invented the Michael Douglas character for the movie. Oh yeah, yeah. Of course they call him Remington. <laughs> yeah, it made right. me think he was the Remington from the from the rifles. I think you know that's I think what they were trying to kind of like insinuate without insinuating, but they were trying to make some sort of connection to that to make him seem to to kind of validate him as like the world's best hunter. And you know, there's I think a line like Val Kilmer says where uh, uh, when they first are looking to bring him in, and he's like, oh. Anyone that's ever hunted has heard of what is it like Charles Charles Remington? Um, and there's that line. How am I? I've never heard of him. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess I've only been hunting twice. So what can I say? Right. Um, but yeah. So I guess you you want me to give my uh, my 30 second uh, elevator pitch of the movie? Do it. All right. So we got Val Kilmer coming in. Uh, Irish gentleman. Uh, he is assigned to go out to Africa to basically build a bridge. It's for the Uganda Railway. It's the whole whole uh, colonial race to Africa is happening. It's in the, you know, I think 1860s at the time. Um, so they're building a train into the middle of Africa. Val Kilmer is a bu bridge builder. He has to go in and build this bridge over this river. Um, he's sent in, and uh, he, you know, as as he's coming in, there's, there's some lion attacks, uh, starts freaking out all the villagers. 
he is a he's a hunter. That's that's his whole thing. He's hunted around the world in India and everything. And so he goes out, kills the lion. You know, there's much rejoicing. Everyone everyone thinks they're safe. Well, as as things progress, as they start building the bridge, all of a sudden uh, there's more attacks, and they realize that there's two more lions that are out there and are behaving in an odd way. They're not acting like normal lions. They're man eaters. They're attacking during the day. They're they're aggressive. They're doing weird things. And so pretty much the rest of the movie is about him and then eventually this other character, Samuel Remington, this super experienced hunter that come in. They come in and it's about them trying to hunt down the lions and, and trying to outsmart these lions. Um, and eventually, uh, I don't know, am I allowed to give away the end of the movie at this point? Oh, spoilers all the time, yeah. Go for okay. it. Spoilers. So, yeah, they eventually... I didn't I didn't know if that was the, the no-go with the introduction. Um, so, yeah, they eventually they get the first lion. Um, the second lion ends up taking out... Uh, um, what's his name? Michael Douglas's character. And that finally sends Val Kilmer over the edge. And, uh, and Val Kilmer, you know, has the very dramatic moment and uh, finally takes out the final lion. Um, and then there's some very dramatic... Uh, Dramatic monologuing at the end about how if you go see these lions in the Chicago uh, Chicago Museum, you will look in their eyes and still be afraid. <laughs> <laughs> Narrated yeah. by a guy that is not Morgan Freeman. Um, uh, interesting side note on the, um, the the lions. There actually are in the like the museum in Chicago, but they're smaller than they actually were uh, because mm-hmm. he originally he cut he trimmed their pelts down to serve as rugs for his house before. The museum bought them. So if you see them in there, they're actually smaller than they actually were. They're actually really big lions. And one of the things I thought was interesting was they're, they don't have manes. Um, yeah. I guess the, the male lions in that region, like I was, I, I did some reading because I always thought that was weird. And I remember I looked up, because I, I, I saw them, I saw the picture of them and thought like, oh, I thought they were male lions. And then I, you know, I did some research and I guess it's just a thing in that region because there's so little water. They don't grow manes. It's uh, like an evolutionary kind of a thing where uh, to keep themselves cooler, they'd waste too much water if they were panting with all that extra fur. But so there's yeah, your and I was reading the, the Wikipedia on it, and the, well, this is one thing the movie didn't go into because I guess you have to have like a villain kind of a character. But in the mm-hmm. real world, um, the explanation for why the man-eaters kind of existed, why they were around there, was because they had a, um, a lot of dead bodies just laying around. Like yeah, the would, slave caravans. Yeah, the slave caravans. So they just drop dead or kill them or whatever. And so the lions just got used to feeding off of just this easy food source. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, they just naturally kind of progressed into killing these uh, slow-moving pink things. <laughs> well, yeah, I guess it's uh, the slave caravans would move through there, and it was just there was zero water. And I somebody was saying, I think it was saying in there that, there was a lot of disease in that area because of like the the flies and everything. And so that was just that specific area was where the majority of the dead on these caravans would end up dropping. Um, so they, yeah, they got used to that, the taste of human flesh (laughs) to be dramatic about it. Yeah. It it makes sense that if, if they had all that quote unquote food available to them, that they would get bigger and bigger than normally lions Mm -hmm. would get because they would have to be stalking and hunting and expending a lot of energy to, uh, get their kills right. So if if it's basically just dropping for them, maybe they'll just get really big like this and have a taste for man flesh, right? That's be the right <laughs> term. So it, mm. it, I guess it sort of makes sense. And uh, this town was called what Savo, and I guess Savo. it means a place of slaughter. Which I don't know if I'd want to live in a place called a place of slaughter <laughs> personally, yeah. but <laughs> yeah. 
So my, I mean, my whole theory behind it is, you know, slavery is a huge violation, obviously, of the the NAP, and so therefore, ipso facto, uh, the NAP is uh, the greatest cause of man-eating lions. Violations of the NAP is the greatest cause of man-eating lions. Um, that's my theory now. It's like the butterfly yeah, so, effect. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it's the ultimate cause. Yeah. So violate the NAP, and you're gonna two man-eating lions are created. That's how the world works. <laughs> or three, right? Three. The natural balance of the world. He, yeah. He took out one of them. <laughs> That's that's one of the weird parts. Is like I feel like that first lion was just some poor bastard. That sorry, am I allowed to say that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, do it up. I feel like that first lion was just some poor bastard that happened to be like cruising through. Like I don't feel like he was one of the super like gnarly like man-eating lions. I think he was just some some poor sap that got caught in the middle of of all this, and the other two were like <laughs> jackass. <laughs> right. <laughs> Because, <laughs> like, just, I, I don't know, there was no drama put behind that lion. Like, there was a little, you know, a little bit of suspense, but I feel like that was never presented as, like, one of the crazy man-eaters. Like, I feel like he was just, like, something to progress the story. I don't know. Maybe that's me. Yeah, very good. Well, that that was a, a pretty good description of, of the plot and everything, and, and I just want to let you know that we just did a Val Kilmer flick last week, uh, and we've we've done a few other ones um, already <laughs> on the show. So we've got a Val Kilmer fetish going on on, on this show. Also a Christian Bale fetish. We've oh, yeah. done a lot of his his uh, movies lately as well. You guys will have to put up like a page um, and, and list out like main actors in each of the movies you do, or like a Venn diagram or something, and see who's uh, who's winning on the stats. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Bale is currently, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, with all the Batman stuff, for sure. And we still have to do American Psycho, so he'll probably, yeah. uh, and, and he works a lot more these days than uh, Kilmer does. <laughs> Just a little bit. But speaking of Kilmer, what did you guys think of him in this movie? I, it annoyed me the whole time that he didn't have an accent, or he kind of did, or it came in and out, or, I mean, he's a British guy, right, or an Irish guy? Well, he, so he's supposed to be Irish, um, but, you know, I guess this was the whole time of, like, big colonialization, so it didn't bother me as much that he didn't have, like, this thick, like, Oh, how y'all doing so? Like Irish accent. Um, I don't know. It, it felt like it was a, some sort of muddled accent, but yeah, I don't know. I wouldn't say it bothered me, but everyone else did have more of an accent than him. Yeah, the, it the just seemed like did... he wasn't. It just seemed like he wasn't trying too hard. That's, <laughs> a, it, that's all. It, it came and went, and and uh, yeah, it was kind of noticeable when it was there, and then noticeable when it wasn't. But uh, he was born in L.A., so right where you yeah. are there, Sam. So he, he's an American <laughs> actor trying to trying to make this accent happen. Well, it's one of those things. I wouldn't even call it uh, an Irish accent that he had. Like, you could tell there was some sort of accent, but it didn't sound like, I don't know, but it was never, he wasn't talking like he would just talk in everyday life. But it it still didn't, yeah, come off like an accent. That's what I think is weird about it. Yeah, yeah he, so this movie, this he came off of uh, Batman, right, Daniel? This is like Batman Forever shortly after that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so, yeah. I mean, he, Batman he, Forever he, was like 95 was, or something, and then this is 97. He was still riding pretty high, I think, on stuff. <laughs> I mean, he was still skinny, Val Kilmer. He hadn't, uh, he didn't, <laughs> he didn't get into the, the rough state yet. I just, I just feel like Liam Neeson would have been a better choice, but I mean, who knows? He's probably busy or something. I don't know. Yeah. I yeah, mean, I'm he was serviceable. To... Don't get me wrong. Kilmer was serviceable. It didn't bother me too much once I got into the story, but it just kind of stuck out at the beginning that it was just kind of weird. Anyway. Hmm. Yeah, it says here they wanted Costner and then Cruz. Uh, and they also, for the Remington character, they wanted Sean Connery or Anthony Hopkins, uh, and even possibly Gerard Zipardu. Hmm. They ended up with uh, Michael Douglas, who the movie for like a third of the movie, maybe. Yeah. And he makes his entrance halfway through, and then the lion, the lion ends up killing him after this uh, botched hunt, which I want to ask you about, Sam. I mean, that that really bothered me 
when they go out and hunt and he's got the Maasai warriors and they're closing in on the lions, they're surrounding the mm-hmm. little uh, little stand, little bush area that, that the lion is in, and he says to Val Kilmer, all right, stay right here. We're going to flush him out and you'll be in a good position. And what's Kilmer do? He starts meandering around, getting in the line of fire. Oh, gosh. Uh, I... Screwing things up. And then the lion, like, uh, confronts him, right? And, and they can't shoot him because... Mm-hmm. He's in the way, and it really bothered me. I thought, hey, that's probably why Sam wanted to talk about this movie, <laughs> because of how fucked up the, <laughs> that hunting scene went. So, yeah, I, I couldn't quite, you know, they don't really ever give you, like, a nice overhead picture of where, like, Val Kilmer was placed versus Michael Douglas and the Messiah Warriors and then the Lion. Um, like, I never really read it as Val Kilmer was, like, in the way of the shot. It, it, I always read it as, like, Michael Douglas just, it was too choked, and he couldn't get a clear shot and couldn't get to a spot where he would get a clear shot. And so, obviously, Val Kilmer had just had his misfire, you know, takes a freaking gun that he's never fired before, has n- hasn't sighted in, doesn't, you know, obviously doesn't work because um, it had a misfire. Uh, so I think, you know, that was his, I think that's why Michael Douglas was yelling, shoot, shoot, because that was the only opportunity they were going to have. Um, but yeah, it, that made, that's like, that's like problem number one. Like when you're hunting with a partner, you just don't do that. You know, you're, um, typically when you're hunting with a partner, you know, you're working out roles like they did beforehand and you you stick to the plan. The second you go running out into the forest, that's how you get shot by someone else. Or, you know, that's how you, you screw up a stock or a, or a hunt is by being in the wrong spot. And uh, especially if you've got a lion that's trying to eat you, uh, when you have somebody else in the forest, they're going in a different direction than they uh, might go otherwise. But, yeah, no, that, I, I sit and every time he starts walking into the forest during that part of the movie, I just sit and I have to cover my eyes and cringe for a minute. That part hurts. <laughs> yeah, and this is before, like, Hunter Orange, right, where, like, people can yeah. see that it's not an animal. Now, explain to me, do animals not see orange? Because otherwise, hunters wear camo, right? Like, they're trying to conceal themselves within the environment, and yet, then they wear this bright orange hat <laughs> or this bright orange vest. So how does that work? So generally, the idea, the purpose of camo is to break up your form. It's to break up your, you as a human are an unnatural shape with, to some extent, like hard lines in, in an environment that has t- a lot more texture and is a lot more broken up than you would normally see otherwise. So that's the majority of the reason for camo. And depending on the animal, they definitely see in different ways than we do. They'll see more muted colors. Um, certain colors they won't see, or at least as best we can tell from science, you know, examination of how the cones work in their eye and stuff like that compared to a human's eye. Um, Something like a deer or an elk uh, in that family, there's certain colors that they'll see more vividly. So, like, they may see, like, a blue more vividly, but, like, a red and an orange, they just won't. It may have some color to it, but it won't be, like, a bright orange like it is to a human eye. Um, but generally the idea of camo is to just break up your shape and your form more than necessarily to fully blend you in, uh, with the environment. Okay. So the bright orange wouldn't be bright and it would be, um, it wouldn't be the form of something because the camo is covering the rest of you. And Mm -hmm. so you need that bright orange so that other hunters know, Hey, you're not an elk. Exactly. That's the idea. That's definitely something you always wear during rifle season. Uh, like, I, I wasn't wearing orange. You, you don't typically wear it a lot during bow season because you're a lot closer in uh, before you're taking shots. But during rifle season, you know, when people are shooting from 100 yards away, 200 yards away, then, yeah, you're definitely, <laughs> you definitely want uh, a big sign that says, hey, I'm a hunter. Do not put a bullet in me. Okay. And so when, when it is bow season or, or rifle season, that's, like, for everybody, right? So you know going into it that, 
no one's shooting rifle mm-hmm. or or what, whatever. So okay, that, that makes more sense. They, typically, they started out. I mean, it's it's organized in a way to give everyone the maximum opportunities because it's harder to hunt with a bow. They make bow season first, so you know the the animals aren't quite as aware. So you know, first first portion of the year is bow season, then it goes into muzzleloader season. Um, and then it goes into rifle season, and then there's different hunts all over, and it gets really complicated, and I pay a lot of money for software that that demystifies government uh, organization for me. Uh, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. All right, well, hey, let's tie this back to the movie. I know you said you yep. had some quotes from the very beginning when he uh, has this discussion with Beaumont, if, if we want to call it a discussion. So oh, yeah. why don't we start there, and that, that'll be kind of the first thing we start picking apart here. Yeah, you know, I mean, I think, honestly, that's, we could probably spend an entire podcast on that first scene alone. But, you know, the whole idea, he comes in, and the line, you know, my favorite, favorite line, because uh, it's just awful, is, you know, we're here to save Africa from the Africans, and then, you know, as a tag, and of course, to end slavery, you know. Um, I just thought that was an interesting interesting line that, of course, uh, ending the slavery was uh, was the uh, the tag on the end to make everything suddenly politically correct. But, you know, it's it's the very typical colonial colonial expression of we have to go save save the savages from themselves. Right. Okay. And and he was very aggressive in this conversation, right? He was like, oh, yeah. I know I know you're the best uh bridge engineer in the world or in Ireland or whatever and I want you to to build me a bridge and you can do such a great job. But if you fuck up or if you do whatever, I'm going to rain fire upon you, you know, bring mm-hmm. bring hell on earth onto you and your family and everything else and I mean, it was some pretty nasty shit he was saying. Uh, I think the I, phrase is, I will use every ounce of my considerable power to destroy you and your reputation. Right, and it was all political power, right? He was uh, mm-hmm. he was a sir, right? So I don't know if that means he's knighted or whatever. But Well, so they were talking about that. I think he talks about it later in the movie. Um, I swear, oh yeah. It's when he actually ends up meeting up with him when he uh, Beaumont comes out to Africa. Um, he, you know, they're talking about stuff and he's uh, trying to get more Beaumont to send more soldiers to protect the villagers. And Beaumont just yells at him, I don't care about you and I don't care about the dead. What I care about is my knighthood. So I think he was working towards becoming a sir is what it sounded like to me. Okay, so he's one of those bureaucratic uh, crony capitalist type climbers, right? Looking for mm-hmm. government bestowed privilege and, and all that. Wait, exactly. do, we, do we know if this if this is a private company doing this? I, I never got the sense that it was one or the other. If this was the British government making this railroad or if this is a corporation working kind of in hand crony style with a government. So now this is uh, this story. It's about the Uganda Railway. Um, and it's I'm, I'm looking at it right now. Uh, British East Africa, the British East Africa Company. It looks like uh, they started a road, and then uh, I don't know if it construction was carried out principally by laborers from India. Yeah, it's not saying one way or the other whether it was a private. I have a feeling. The impression I got was that it was uh, British government run, just because it was part of that whole colonization of Africa. And they're consistently talking about trying to um, trying to beat the Germans and the French and and all of that out there. That that was my impression. It's based in sole speculation, though. It sounds to me like it was a pure crony deal. It, it might have been private uh, on the surface, but it was all financed by government, and he was trying to satisfy the British government with the speed at which it could be completed. Mm-hmm. 
And I mean, and the whole there would be an economic advantage to being the first one to be able to have a railroad through, you know, that would connect all oh, yeah. of Africa or North Africa with South Africa or whatever. And they said it's a, yeah, it was a very strategic. Uh, it ended up being a very strategic kind of thing because it was. It was for the whole colonization of Africa. You know, Germany and England and France and all of these countries are trying to basically take over the whole country and exploit its resources and um, claim ownership o- over it. And so uh, the first people to, until then, basically everything was man-powered. Um, you know, and, until this railroad was built through, everything was was done on in carts and on caravans and things like that. And I was actually reading... Um, you know, he made the comment about, and of course, and slavery. Uh, and that wasn't totally just thrown out there lightly. The, a lot of the idea was the majority of slavery in that area was based on transportation of goods. And so by creating this railroad, they would eliminate a lot of the market need for slaves. Oh, okay, sense. so okay. this was to end slavery in that region. It wasn't to end slavery like the trade in the U.S. because it's, it's yeah. 1898, so slavery was already done here. And if, from what I recall, and, and there's a Steph video about this, but the British Empire had ended slavery even before the United States. So it's um, it's not like it was part of the slave trade. It was the local interactions within Africa that, that mm-hmm. is still had slaves. And, and you're saying that it's possible because of the transportation. And so if they replace that with this efficient um, railroad, then that they will no longer be necessary. Not mm-hmm. that they were ever necessary or moral, but <laughs> it would make it easier for them to give it up. Yeah, it's you know I guess uh, if you want to call it a uh, a market solution to the end of slavery rather than the British just coming in and shooting all the slave owners and and starting a war if you will. Right. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, so uh, Robert, do you have uh, any more comments on this first part, and then we can move on to another scene unless you want to take us somewhere else already. Um. No. Let's let's move on from this this first scene. That that'd be fine. I'm I'm, I'm okay with that. Okay. Uh, so the next thing that I, I noticed was the laborers that he had in Africa. Uh, and I've got a couple of quotes here. Um, they're, they're pretty uh, upset with this John Patterson guy, this uh, Val Kilmer, because he's white. So mm-hmm. I thought that there was a lot of tension there. They're like, you know, you're white. You can do anything. Uh, you can get away with anything. It's almost a nod to white privilege before white privilege was really a thing. Um, you know, 1898 or even 1996, I don't think it was really a thing. That seems a lot more recent. Um, See, but, uh, I go back and forth on that quote, though. I, every, it's like every time I watch it, I, I read it in a different way. Sometimes I read it like that, where I read it like, oh, you're white, you can get away with anything. Like when he says you can do anything. Other times I read it almost as if he's saying it like sarcastically because, you know, John Patterson was coming in and making these like grand like comments about what he's going to do. And he's saying, oh, you're, you're a white guy, you know, you oh, you can just do anything. Kind of not so much saying, like, you can get away with anything, but, like, he's kind of making fun of them, like, oh, yeah, you white guys, you just think you can, you're capable of, of doing absolutely anything and everything. Oh, like Big Dreamer kind of thing? Yeah, it, it's, I, it goes back and forth. Like, I, haven't, I, I don't necessarily believe one way or the other specifically, but every time I watch it, it kind of flips back and forth in my mind how, exactly how he's saying it. Okay. Yeah, I had the uh, exact same reaction. I was questioning whether that was either a, a white privilege type statement or if that was, uh, well, you really are full of yourself. You really sure do have a lot of self-confidence and belief that you can actually set your mind to something and accomplish it, which I thought was more of a, a compliment. <laughs> like, well, yeah, sure, of course. Why wouldn't you be able to you know, achieve something if you believe you can do it and you figure out how to do it and set your mind to task and work hard and achieve something? Yeah, well, what's wrong with that? 
Yeah, this seems like one of those things that when we first saw this movie, probably, you know, 20 years ago, we would have seen it that second way. But mm-hmm. now, because white privilege is like a thing, it's like in the back of our heads. And so <laughs> we're going to see it <laughs> that other way now. <laughs> well, there's a uh, there's another um, uh, there's another line that kind of references that, too. And I think it's I think it's referring to the. The lions or something. Yeah, I've got that quote here too, yeah. They were the devil sent to stop the white man from owning the world. Yeah, yeah, he's saying that the lions were there to prevent the white men from getting the railroad completed because it would help them further their conquest of the continent or whatever. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, this is, uh, there's a lot of racial tension in this, in this movie, and not only uh, between Patterson and I think uh, the workers were from India but there were mm-hmm. also workers from Africa, and there's a there's a line related to that as well, where he says, uh, "I think this is Abdullah, right? Their foreman." Uh, Abdullah was the foreman, and then Samuel was like the liaison. Samuel was the African guy. Abdullah was the Indian guy. Right. Yeah. And and they say the Africans don't like the Indians, and the Indians don't like the other Indians, and so you got all this like tension going on uh, in in the labor uh, the labor. I, it was like a camp, right? I mean, this is wilderness, mm-hmm. and they've got tents and all this stuff. Um, but I, I felt like there was a lot of um, a lot of play with that. Like they were forcing these disparate groups together with very different cultures, and there was a lot of uh, friction um, that was that was palpable as as a result of that of, of bringing these people together. However, they were still able to get work done, and I think that was because there was money involved. There was a market kind of involved, and and mm-hmm. it plays into that idea of you know the market will punish you if you're exhibiting racism, if you're doing something that people don't desire or don't like, uh, you're going to get ostracized. You're not going to be as, um, as uh, profitable. You know, you're, you're going to pay, you're going to suffer the, co- the consequences and the cost of those actions that, that uh, people on, mar- on the market don't, don't like. And I think right. that's an interesting lesson to, to pull out of this. Yeah, market opportunities don't always follow along ideological lines. So capitalism absolutely brings us together, whether you, people want to be brought together or not. <laughs> Well, you know, and you see uh, as they go in, they made kind of almost a big deal about, like you said, that racial tension. But then immediately after, you know, that first lion attack happens, he takes the lion. And then you don't really see a ton of that because they're focused on something else. It's an it's an interesting, I thought it was interesting they made such a big deal of it at the beginning of the movie. And then it was almost not referenced at all because it was so focused on the these exciting moments of them building the railroad and coming together as a group. Uh, but yeah, you don't, I don't feel like you really notice, you don't ever see that racial tension. They don't play it out later in the movie at all. Yeah. Well, I think another thing that plays uh, against the tension is when Patterson takes the first lion, they feel like he's the hero. He's saved them because they thought mm-hmm. it was just the one lion. It had killed a couple of people. And here's this guy, he's leading the, charge on building the bridge and oh by the way he also killed the lion that was killing people and everyone's happy about it so he was he was high up on their um you know on their pedestal uh, right after that but then the other two lions start doing their work and it causes i think some dissent among the workers right like abdullah starts to turn on patterson and um says he's going to go on strike or, or the he's going to send the workers mm-hmm. home and they have this big scene where the train is pulling out and people are running after it climbing on it with all their stuff and the yep. and the train is like covered in people right like they're <laughs> just clamoring like they're hanging it. off the front of it and yeah well and there was three i think there was three separate moments where abdullah was actually trying to take all his dudes and peace out and it's and it, the, the escalation was interesting you know uh 
there was the first moment, I think, when uh, it was right before Beaumont actually shows up in Africa, where uh, uh, Patterson is going to, Val Kilmer is going to meet uh, Beaumont at the train. Abdullah comes up and is like, hey, we're out of here. You know, we're leaving. And, um, and, it's, and it's interesting because Patterson turns around and it, it's kind of almost the reverse in that, like, okay, you know, uh, you have to hold up your end of the bargain too. He, but he looks at him and he's like, you know what, go ahead, leave. Get on the train with him, but this railroad's going to get finished, and you're going to have nothing to show for it. You're going to have to go back to these these men's wives with nothing. And uh, then you turn around, and all of a sudden, all the men are are filtering back to work. But uh, I thought that was just also an interesting interesting point to uh, you know these people were on the verge of leaving, and you know it was suddenly realized, okay, yeah, you're welcome to leave. That's how a, a consensual arrangement works. But if you leave, you don't get the benefits that you would get if you'd stayed, which is, you know, getting paid and, and having something to show for these men that have died in, right, uh, yeah, in this yeah. situation. Patterson, Patterson also pulled the man card on them and oh, said that for you, know, sure. you didn't, you would, you know, run away with your tail between your legs and then just being uh, like fall, you know, succumb to your own fear. Yeah, I think the and that, that because you didn't master up, your fear. Right. That theme pops up again and again in this movie. I'm not really sure what the movie was trying to say about fear, other than you need to master your fear in the na- in the face of you know being hunted. But that that kept popping up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And you mentioned that there were a couple of other moments of tension with Abdullah, and and one of them I wanted to bring up was when Abdullah uh, is confronting Patterson with this mob around him, mm-hmm. and and it looks like they're gonna attack Patterson. They're gonna kill him, right? Uh, and Abdullah keeps saying, "I'm a man of peace," but he's sitting there riling up the mob yep. to, to string up Patterson. And then this is where Remington makes his, his very, uh, very timely entrance <laughs> and equalizes the situation with a firearm. See, I, it was funny because, and I don't know, I know that's the intention, but it never, that scene in my mind, and I think this was just a fault of maybe the director, but that scene in my mind never quite got to the spot where I ever felt like he was in danger of being strung up. I thought they were maybe, you know, going to start throwing stuff at him or whatever. But, like, I never sat there watching feeling like, okay, um, you know, he's in mortal danger or whatever, if you will. You know, that was that was one of the weird things for me. Um, so then when, of course, Remington comes comes bouncing out with puts a gun to the dude's head, for me, that was almost not quite uh, – I don't know. I wasn't, I wasn't quite there yet. I wasn't convinced he, uh, any lives were in danger, so – I was, I was yeah, I, I just want to echo mm-hmm. what you just said. I had the exact same reaction. I thought that all of a sudden Remington coming in and like saving the day was kind of like uncalled for. Like he could have just stepped in and shouted a little bit or something. I don't know, but I, I thought the gun to the head was a bit extreme because I didn't feel that uh, Patterson was really in any kind of mortal danger. Maybe it would get to that point, like you said, mm-hmm. in a few, like in a minute. But at that point, yeah, I didn't. I felt the same way. Yeah. This was no. This was no like tombstone with uh, with uh, what's his name, where they're where the the cowboys are trying to string up um, string up the guys, and uh, and he puts the gun to the head there. This this felt to me like they were they were maybe going to start a riot and throw throw some tools and stuff. But I and I think you know they were trying to get across. Yeah, they were going to string him up. I think that may have just been a fault of the director. But you know we can only work with what they give us. And and I'm a I did not feel like his life was in danger. And I thought. That was a rather over-the-top reaction. Right. But yet yeah. we immediately side with Douglas as he, you know, starts kind of like yelling at people and telling them to do things. Like when he goes in and the hospital and kind of starts barking orders, not not threatening away, but just in a 
hey, I'm an educated person. Now, what did you think about Douglas's um, actions at that point when he's like, yeah, this, this whole hospital, this is one giant, like, smorgasbord? Well, I mean, you know, that's probably the smartest thing he did in theory. Like, yeah, it was a, it was a closed-walled room and everything, and, um, I, you know, there was some safety in that. But, yeah, the whole place smelled of sickness and death. Like, we were talking earlier about, like, you know, you want to uh, you want to go back to your kill. Like after you kill an animal, uh, that's the most dangerous part is when you're going back and you've got all of that gutted animal, all of those guts out. So if you've got a hospital that's got blood everywhere and just smells of death and like meat, <laughs> you're going to you're going to have predators more attracted to that. On the other hand, it was also a room with, you know, walls and a door and a floor rather than a tent. And, you know, I mean, as we know later in the movie, the tent really didn't do too much to, uh, to protect people that end up getting dragged out. So, right. I mean, in theory, you know, provided, uh, you know, they obviously took a little artistic liberty with, with probably how intelligent these, these lions were and, um, you know, kind of the drama of it. But in theory that from a hunting perspective, that's definitely was, was a wise choice. I think on, on Remington's part was to clear out all that blood and, and use it as a trap. Yeah, my take on, on Remington was that he he came in in the scene uh, with Abdullah and with the hospital kind of taking charge. He was Winston Wolfing this motherfucker. Like, <laughs> yeah, he was walking in knowing, okay, here's here's a lot of deficiencies I'm seeing in how you guys are handling yourself. This is why you have a lion problem. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, <laughs> you got uh, this basically this bait for lions to come. Uh, you got a place for them to feast and and hunt, and uh, it's not hard for them to do it and they're big lions and and they're going to do whatever they need to do so why make it easier for them Mm -hmm. so i saw him kind of taking charge to like correct for that so there was there was actually right before that there was another scene um that i think just illustrates another another option market opportunity option was when he first comes in after he kind of clears out the mob if you will um you know he does his whistle or his call or whatever and all the maasai warriors pop up out of the grass and start filtering up uh, into the into the little village or uh, encampment, if you want to call it. And uh, you hear Samuel talking, um, and he's like, oh, yeah, Remington uses the Maasai to hunt, um, hunt lions. It'll cost you, you know, whatever I think he says, like 10 head of cattle or something like that. But, you know, you can't, you can't get any better. Um, and so it's like, I thought that was interesting, uh, where it was just, it was another, another illustration of like, hey, you know what? You go out, you buy the best. If you want to, you want to do this right. It's going to cost you, but you'll have uh, you'll have the best hunters in league with you. Yeah, and to jump off of that, um, yeah, they spent the money to get the best hunters, uh, so market right. But it also failed. So it's entrepreneurial risk. Like he mm-hmm. took the risk of hiring these people in hopes that he would be able to accomplish whatever his goal was, and he hired the best people to to help him do that. But he still failed, and that's part of anything in the market like you can still fail as best prepared as you can be and, and buying the best and hiring the best you can still if you don't have a certain amount of luck and a certain amount of drive and having a good idea to begin mm-hmm. with uh, you're still going to fall flat i think was it like 70 percent of businesses close in the first year there would it, probably be more succeed if they didn't have the tremendous tax and regulation burden that businesses are saddled with so Yes, the silent partner of government <laughs> getting well, we a can, cut of all the any any profit and no risk in the losses. It's socialism, right. man. Well, I think it also illustrates uh, you got to with that entrepreneurship, you have to have the right partners in there because you had 
as we were talking about earlier, that whole scene, honestly, a good portion of the reason it failed was because you have Val Kilmer being a complete idiot going in to the freaking forest. It's like everyone else is like doing their part. They're flushing the lion and, you know, they're pulling off the, the crap off their legs and the bells are ringing and they're, they're flushing him where he needs to go. And then all of a sudden Val Kilmer's sitting there uh, like a jackass with a gun he shouldn't be carrying um, that's not firing and the whole thing goes to pot. So Yeah, let's talk Speaking. about that for a second. So he, he okay, had his own gun that he used on the first lion mm-hmm. and it was a smaller caliber or whatever than... Um, than this doctor's gun. And so the doctor's like, as he's going to go out and hunt this big man-eater lion, he's like, oh, take this bigger gun. It's got a bigger, takes a bigger cartridge, and you'll be able to yeah. you know, take the lion out in one shot. So he's out there with an unfamiliar gun, never tested it, not familiar with it. He he totally betrays the plan that they put together with Remington at the beginning. You know, we're going to flush him out towards you. And he goes into the ravine. He's in the line of fire. For, so Remington can't shoot the lion. And uh, John's gun, Val Kilmer's gun, doesn't fire. I mean, talk about like a calamity, uh, a perfect storm of, of like stupidity mm-hmm. when it comes to, to <laughs> hunting this thing. Uh, I don't know. It's just kind of this ridiculous uh, situation that, I mean, I don't know. I don't know if there's a lesson to draw from that or, or not, but I would say, you know, for your podcast, you, you have a, a section where you talk about the gear that you have and you have reviews of it and, and links out to Amazon, which is a way to support your site. Uh, we also have links on our site so people can support us. Uh, go to our actualanarchy.com slash tip jar to find out other ways of supporting us. But I think that's a really cool thing that you do uh, on your on your site and in your show. Um, and I guess the lesson here would be, you know, be familiar with your gear. Make sure oh, you yeah. have what you need and make sure that whatever you plan, especially uh, you mentioned this earlier, if you're doing a partner hunting, that sounds weird, uh, if you're hunting with a partner, <laughs> partner hunting, uh, uh, yeah, the most dangerous game, man, right? <laughs> Uh, uh, you know, make sure you stick to that plan. You don't you don't go into a position to where you're going to be not where your partner is expecting you to be. So if they were to fire a shot, you know, you might get hit. You might be downwind of that thing. Well, you know, and, and that's what I was getting at is like, you know, a, uh, maybe this is a stretch, maybe not. But going out hunting with someone, a lot of trust is involved. Same as if you're looking to start a business with someone, um, you know, you, you go in to start a business with someone, you need to be able to trust them and uh, understand that they know their shit and they're going to, they're going to handle business when they need to in the way that they need to. And they're going to work with you on the plan. The two of you laid out. Um, if someone, if someone doesn't do that, you know, it can completely throw off a hunt. It can completely throw off a business relationship. And that may be something you can't recover from. Yeah. So good point. Maybe it's, maybe it's a, maybe it's a stretch, but you know, if we're, you know, we're kind of comparing that entrepreneurship, um, uh, the Maasai warriors to entrepreneurship, and uh, I figured that's kind of where my mind took it. And I'm going to apologize. My dogs are running around right now, and I have nowhere to put them, so. <laughs> no, that's all right. That's the only time I heard little clicky clacks of, the, of their toes <laughs> on the floor. Um, yeah, and, you know, that's kind of what we do here on this show. We just sort of have this free association conversation about a movie and just take it wherever, you know, talk about how dumb they are in a scene or if there's some <laughs> kind of way we can shoehorn a, a, an economics point in there, we'll do that too. So you're, you're a great sport doing that with us. <laughs> no, absolutely. So Robert, uh, you, you were about to say something before we so rudely interrupted you. Well, I, I'm just inspired by your guys talking about the dumb things in this movie and I, I don't want to trash it too much because you know, it's, it's a pretty good movie. It's, it's filmed in a very traditional Hollywood style. I don't think the director took a lot of risks. He probably made some bad decisions, but it's very deliberate, very standard movie. But there were a lot of dumb things. Now, I understand when you're making a movie, you need to have the characters make some mistakes, and you can't have them killing the lions in the first act. That just doesn't make any <laughs> sense. But 
you, I, I think you can avoid having them make some really fucking dumb decisions like we're talking about with The Hunt, because a lot of this movie actually is made up. I mean, I know it's drawn off a book that the Patterson wrote, but I like the character, the Remington character is totally made up. But several things occurred to me. One, Patterson is a hunter. He's an experienced hunter, and he previously hunted tigers. Now, mm-hmm. does nobody in Africa... Has they, have they ever heard of a tiger trap? So what a tiger trap is, is you dig a hole and you take some game and you suspend it over the hole so that when the, the lion or the tiger comes along and tries to get at the food, it falls into a pit. And then you can, at your leisure, do whatever you want to this animal. You can have <laughs> some spiky stuff down at the bottom of it or you could just take pot shots at it from the above. It, it doesn't matter. You, you can't get out. In the pit, in the pit, in the pit, in the pit. This, yeah, this guy... back to our Willow episode. <laughs> this guy has experience hunting tigers. There's no way he would not have heard of a tiger trap. So instead of what a tiger... I mean, instead, of a, instead of getting a, a tiger trap, which is essentially foolproof, which would have ended the movie, we get this, <laughs> this boxcar idea, which is a pretty dang good idea if you want to have not a tiger trap pit. So they put three experienced hunters on the other side of some bars, and then they have this trap lure, and so then the tiger comes in, or the lion comes in, sorry. Well, I think the experienced hunters uh, is, is debatable. Being uh, yes. Well, because <laughs> yes, they, also, they also had a line where they were, he was like, they were like, oh, yes, we've been hunting since childhood. And he looks at him, he's like, no, you're all thieves and murderers. Like, I'm not dumb. <laughs> right, but that's still a good thing. I mean, yeah. you know how to shoot a gun. That was the main <laughs> thing. And what happens instead? They fire how many rounds and they can't hit it one time? And instead they hit chains, which knock open the door. And then they end up hitting the bars, which makes the shot ricochet back and shooting themselves. And they let that whole scene, that whole scene really strained my disbelief. Well, so funny enough, I was reading up on the, the actual true story, and apparently that is actually one of the, I mean, obviously it was dramatized, but that was actually one of the uh, a, a true parts. He did build that contraption, and he did have some people in there, and, and they ended up shooting and shooting and shooting and missing. Um, and, you know, I mean, we have a we have a term for that. You know, we call it if whatever you're chasing, but either buck or bull fever. Um, it's just this moment where you see your quarry, and in this case, it's got to be even worse because they're terrified of this thing. You know, it's the ghost in the darkness. Um, and you, you literally, you just black out. You have no idea what you just did. Like, and uh, any hunter will tell you it's happened to them, um, where there's this moment where you, you go to draw on an animal, and you don't remember a thing from the time you started pulling back your bow until the time until well after that arrow has been released, whether or not it hits the animal. Like, it's just, it's called buck fever is what most people call it. Um, is it uh, it's like, like that big adrenaline, adrenaline rush? Yeah, it, it, I mean, it has to do, uh, I, didn't, I didn't hear what else I said, but yeah, it has to do typically with like a big adrenaline rush. You literally just revert to your most basic human state because you have so much excitement going through you. And there's, it's just one of those things like you learn to control over time. Um, but I could see that, that that part until I started hunting was never believable to me. Um, obviously, you know, it's dramatized with the bullets ricocheting everywhere and, and, uh, and all of that. But now that I've been in the woods and I understand that a little bit more and I've, I've drawn on a couple of animals, I haven't, I haven't fired, but I recognize that. I'm like, okay, I can see that happening. That's a, that's a possibility. Okay. Okay. I'll grant you the buck fever, (laughs) but what I will not grant you, sir, is the fact that this boxcar was right in the middle of camp. Mm. It was, they showed it and they showed it like 
tents are all around it. There's a there's a, a fence of like bramble bushes, right? Just like dead bushes right around it. But yeah. it's right in the middle of camp. And how many shots got fired and nobody got woken up and came and ran to see what was happening or to I mean to yeah that was a little line as it's getting a, escaping or anything like that. No, I'll definitely. So they were all that. afraid. They were all huh? afraid of the lion, though. And Patterson would have woke up. This trap... He would have come running to it. Yeah, I was kind of skeptical about where the hell was was Patterson during this time, or even like the the priest or the or no, was the priest? No, the priest wasn't dead yet. Um, the I think he died uh, after after shortly after that. But um, yeah, no, I, I I am a little skeptical that no nobody came running um, on that uh, on that scene. Okay, and why why is there a massive shortage of spears or like sharpened sticks in this in this camp? I mean, if, if if it wouldn't have done any good when you're getting dragged out of a tent, but if there's a tiger attack in midday and you can't afford a rifle or anything like that, it still helps to have like a spear. Um, I have no idea. Maybe they were maybe they just weren't allowing them in the camp. I'm stretching for this, but uh, yeah, you are. It's all right. It's okay. That's my only maybe thought. Maybe the Messiah had had a, had a monopoly on him. <laughs> yeah, I mean, my only thought was maybe they just weren't, uh, you know, they weren't allowing them because they they wanted. Uh, they're like, you guys have your tools, you work, that's what you do. Um, but I don't know. I okay. I wouldn't know. That's that feels like one of those movie things. Okay. Well, yeah, there's a lot of movie things. Okay, one more time where I was like, that's really dumb. So they set this trap in the old hospital and they just cover it in blood and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And then they have all the other sick people in this new hospital away on the other side of camp. So then Douglas and Kilmer are inside the hospital, and they got their rifles ready. And the lions attack. And instead of letting the lions in mm-hmm. and then shooting them, they shoot at them like through the ceiling blindly, at the door blindly, clearly frightening away the lions so that the lions would go look for some easier prey. And then they're surprised when they attack the hospital. Yeah, that's another part of the movie I don't want to talk about. (laughs) Well, it's like, or at least like cut some, some like places in the, in the walls you can shoot through or see through. Like that, yeah, that part made absolutely zero sense. Like even from a movie perspective, that part made zero sense. All right, so why did the lions have like Back to the Future style warp speed to get over to that hospital? Meanwhile, these guys leaving the old hospital, they hear the the screaming and the crying, and it takes them forever to get over there. And by the time they get over there, the the hospital is completely flattened. All the people in it are dead. Like it seems like there was this big amount of time that happened in between the lions leaving uh, this old hospital and killing everyone in the new hospital. Meanwhile, Michael Douglas and Val Kilmer seem to take, you know, super long to get over there. Unless it was tag team act- action by the Lions where one I did all the damage and the other one was distracting uh, Kilmer and Douglas. I think that's what was going on, with, or the idea, I should say, um, was that one Lion was like kind of under the floorboards or climbing on the roof of the place and, and, and checking them out. And the other Lion was like, well, screw this. I'm going to go eat the eat the people in the hospital. Okay. Well, that... that- sort of makes a little bit more sense. I mean, it's still, yeah, I have all the same <laughs> same issues you've got, Robert, on that. <laughs> yeah, no, that scene's just painful. That's another one that's like, really? Yeah, they're not in a position to see anything at all. It, it's it's really weird how they arrange that. Like, that was a very, very bad plan. That's what my daughter would say. It's a very bad plan. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so let's get into another dumb thing. It's a little bit later in the film, and Robert, I'm sure this is on your list. What's with this perch thing that Kilmer erects and decides to sit on and then 
try to do some gymnastics on in the middle of this field mm. where this lion's running around. Like, why is he, like, so disoriented on this thing and then, of course, falls off? Yeah, um, I didn't see why they didn't see the baboon getting taken. I mean, you got three, three pairs of eyeballs on the scene and nobody sees the, ba- the baboon. And then his big mistake was not making the stand owl-proof because that's what <laughs> ends up getting him. <laughs> Freaking bird attacked him and he falls out. Oh gosh, I yeah, I don't know about that one. That's like I I don't even so much know. Like he said, I guess the lions were used to him being in a tree. Um, right. I'm not really sure how that was any different. Yeah, I guess it was in the middle of a clearing. Maybe he was trying to make himself bait again as well as the baboon. But yeah, that I don't know. You know, that was, was another that really thing. Happened. It, that it was another thing, like he was some movie thing talking about, though. That like he learned from hunting tigers in India. I think um, that's. I think that's where he got that idea. That was something they supposedly used out there. So I don't know. Maybe that was their that was their sad attempt at the pit trap instead. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know. A- yeah, anybody else bothered by the? Of times. Anybody else bothered by the out of control um, growling and roaring effects? on the, the lion. Whenever the oh, lion was on screen, it was always growling and roaring, even though its lips weren't moving at all. Oh, yeah. Well, especially in the um, in the boxcar. You know, and once again, I know that was supposed to be, like, almost a nightmare sequence, uh, you know, with the, the heat waves from the flames and, you know, you're looking at the lion's eyes. But, like, yeah, the out-of-control growling where they're like, oh, their hands are over their ears and it's ear-splitting and they can't control it. And, oh, gosh. Yeah, yeah because Hollywood... Was- Hollywood has this real big problem. Of like anytime there's a cat on screen, it's always meowing or screaming or screeching. It's just, it's just, it's like, it's like, yes, we know, we see there's a cat, we know there's a lion, so you don't need to like, constantly reinforce that it's upset all the time, or that's just what cats always do. I think the I think the killing of uh, killing and eating of people might might be enough for us to get the impression that it's upset. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. There was uh, there was one line, um, you know, this just completely random, but it was uh, right. Oh, it was when they started first building the um, those those bramble those bramble like fences, I guess is the best way to call them. I can't remember what they called them in the movie. Um, but you know, they they put together all the branches and the thorny brambles and stuff and created those fences to kind of protect themselves initially. Um, yeah. I think that was like right after the first uh, first hunt, and then um, uh, the priest comes out and. Uh, the the Irish or Scottish priest comes out and there's a line he says uh, it's glorious what man can accomplish with one splendid goal there are no limits and I thought I was like you know what that's kind of cool kind of a cool line but then you know he goes in and he talks about uh, basically like you know and it will only be successful you know when I convert if the entire world right right and everybody <laughs> everyone's the got thing. the love of Jesus right exactly yeah and I We're mean all you know one big collective yeah. And I grew up, I grew up as a conservative Christian, you know, I, I still am, but even that, like, that line just creeped me out, man. I was like, <laughs> um, I'm like, that's like some, some Borg collective, uh, you know, one mind, right. one, one yeah. world, uh, kind of stuff. Exactly, um, yeah, what we can accomplish if everybody thinks the exact same way all the time. Mm-hmm. And yeah. it's, it was it was interesting in that to some to, it started out kind of well like oh it's awesome you know like when everyone's working towards a goal we can accomplish these great things which is is super true but then it like he like took it right over the top of the hill and <laughs> it went into over the cliff creepy world yep. yeah, definitely over the cliff <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, yeah it started promising <laughs> uh 
right, what any, else any, happens in this Any movie? other notes on this thing? Um, I, I've yeah, already extended my really, notes. All my yeah. notes are about the, the labor stuff. Yeah, that was the, the majority of it. I mean, um, you know, most of that labor was, uh, that's kind of what I had most of my notes on, was just a lot of the, all of that labor was brought in from India, which was just, you know, another another colonized uh, colonized country. Um, now, do you think that the reason for that was that because it would it had been previously colonized in India, like they already had a sort of, quote-unquote, working relationship with people from India, and they knew that they could work with them, they spoke English, they knew what they were getting, essentially, versus the people who were native to Africa at the time, speaking various languages, not, you know, being newly uh, colonized, right? So probably being somewhat resistant, uh, and rightly so. But do you think that that's perhaps why there was this big contingent from India there doing a lot of the work? I I think it was, uh, there was a lot of that. Also, uh, from what I understand, that region was just so sparsely populated, there wasn't a workforce to enlist. Um, there's probably also the matter of payment, and you know this would be speculation, but I feel like uh, you're not going to be able to the the way the countries are developed. You know, India at the time was a lot more developed. I feel like versus that area of Africa, the wages you're going to pay. You know, you can you can pay the Indians in in fiat currency versus the Africans. You know, you're going to have to give them hard goods. Goats um, or, or goats cattle or, or cattle or or food, you know, grain, whatever that may be. Um, and you know, once again, just pure speculation, but I feel like that would be a big, big part of it. Where you know, India's been colonized for a while, and you know, I'm not an expert on the history of this, but I feel like it's more quote unquote civilized, and uh, you know, you can give you can give them a paycheck versus uh, versus the African laborers you're going to have to provide actual goods and services for. Right. Okay. So they're further developed. Uh in India, like they use money, uh, so transaction costs are, are much less versus a more barter type exchange with the laborers in, in the African parts. Or, you know, even even if they paid uh, the African workers, I don't know, right? Because if, if they were, if they had all these slaves transporting goods across Africa and this train was going to um, eliminate the need for that, wouldn't they have used the laborers from the transportation to build the train and wouldn't that be slave labor i i don't know total speculation that's what we do here <laughs> <laughs> yeah it was it was tough to say like the the relationship with all of that was was very was very strange and kind of vague and unclear i think they i think they just wanted to get to the action action portion of the movie so they didn't define all those relationships too well but um yeah no it's it's tough to say okay well why don't we uh, get towards the end of the movie where patterson finally well, actually, before that, I do want to get to his dream sequence because it's kind of badass. <laughs> um, his, uh, I, I just spoiled it by calling it a dream sequence, but uh, he envisions his wife and newborn son coming to visit him from Ireland, or maybe they're staying in London, but she's Irish or something, and uh, coming to visit him on site. And she says, oh, where's John Patterson? And they go, oh, he, we'll call for him. And he starts coming towards the station house and he sees her up on the porch, and then he also sees the lion, like, darting towards her, dashing towards her. He's like, no! <laughs> and the lion, like, eats her face off. Uh, and they ex- which, they extended that scene. Like, that's not like your normal, like, oh, the lion hits and he wakes up immediately. No, like, that's full on. Like, they show the lion, like, digging in on on a dress, like, with a bonnet. It's That was a gnarly scene. Right, and, and the baby, right? I mean, it's like... 
Yeah, totally nasty. Uh, did, Robert, did you have a reaction to that? Because they don't tell uh, you it's a dream until right after that. Yeah, no, I thought it was really, really hard hitting because, I mean, now that I look back on it, and know, once I know it's a dream sequence, then I'm like, oh, that's a really good dream sequence because <laughs> I, I don't know if you've had these, this experience or not, but in some of my dreams where something is happening that I don't want it to, it's like there's always people in my way and I can't get through them and it's really hard to move. And that's mm-hmm. what happens in the dream sequence. He, he wants to get to his wife, but his workers just keep stopping him and impeding his progress. And it's just really frustrating. He's like, I, I, it's like swimming through molasses. So, yeah, that was, it was really effective. And, um, yeah, I started taking notes like it was really happening. Like I did, I, cause I didn't know it was a dream sequence. Absolutely. Yeah. It was really good. There's, there's an interesting almost cue. Like it's, it's an imperceptible cue that it is a dream sequence just in that, Something I, I remember had happened, and I, I forget what had happened just before that, but I feel like, you know, the workers were all dissatisfied or something like that, and work had kind of stopped. But when you get into that scene, all of a sudden, like, the whole the whole work camp is busy again, and people are milling about and carrying stuff, and it it was very, but, like, it feels like the it movie, went from... Well, they had just killed the the first lion. Mm-hmm. The second lion, I'm sorry, the second lion, the, the the one of the two pair, the pair, and they were celebrating. They had just drank a bunch of champagne, and I thought that the movie was, you know, jumping ahead into in time because it, it had done that a couple of times. There's a couple of time jumps, so that's what I, that's why I thought that, oh, we're moving ahead in time and we're, everything's good. And I'm like, well, what happened to that last lion? Well, maybe we'll get to it. So that's why I thought it was is quite effective. I gotcha. Yeah, I, yeah, I saw it that. Seemed, seemed jarring to me. Yeah, for for me, I I did notice this juxtaposition between it was um, work had halted and then in this sequence it's bustling, but not only that, no one is reacting to the lion. Right. That mm-hmm. is and the biggest clue. Yeah. Yeah, that's the giveaway. No one's reacting at all. They're just like going about their business, milling about, Borg-like, hive-like, right? It, yeah, so I think that's, right. that's, upon seeing it again, that's kind of the giveaway that you'll notice, that something isn't quite mm-hmm. right. It's not like uh, a literal scene. It's a dream. And, of course, the result of the dream is, is he wakes up uh, in a sweat and in a panic, and only to find that uh, the Michael Douglas character, Remington, has been dragged off into the field, and there's this big, like, crop circle of blood. Uh, like, the aliens <laughs> have come down and <laughs> scoped him. That was insane like it looked like he exploded in that area to create that much blood <laughs> i what mean don't guys... get me wrong i'm not i'm not an expert on human dismemberment by lion but <laughs> that seemed a little like spread in yeah the giant crop circle for me right what did you guys like what did you guys think of the uh like final climax scene with the way it all went down i thought it was a bit kind of hollywoody but it was yeah. super i mean it's the moment where you see him regain his resolve to you know and he it's that it's that giant effort moment where he's just like screw it i'm i'm putting away everything i know about hunting and i'm just gonna be badass and yeah. hardcore and burn down the serengeti and yeah, it, it was works like, like yeah it was like fuck that now it's personal and he just kind of grabs a gun exactly. and go out into the wilderness mano <laughs> a mano like mr tough guy yeah that's <laughs> pretty bad you know, and of course he had just like sprinted. It, it was all perfectly, you know, designed. He had just sprinted through the wilderness, so so he's sweaty and dirty and dramatic, and his shirt's kind of torn open, and he's wearing the lion necklace. And versus like the juxtaposition between that and the beginning of the movie, you know, when he's very like the proper gentleman with his glasses on and and all of that at any at all times, kind of a thing. Right. Yeah. Have a but. tea and biscuits. <laughs> now. Oh yeah. So he he goes rogue, right? He goes out 
chasing the lion, totally unprepared at this point. He's like, fuck it, I'm going Predator Rambo style on this on this lion. Um, but he doesn't encounter the lion until he gets back to the bridge, right? Because isn't that where the final mm-hmm. battle kind of happens? This lion is like doing some uh, spelunking on the bridge, like up and down the <laughs> different levels, double-decker, and um, John barely, uh, barely is able to get some shots off and kill the lion finally, right? Well, so it's, yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it moves back and forth, like, they go, you know, they chase it out, and then they're back at the bridge, and it's, like, jumping up and down through the bridge, and he's, he's using the pistol that Remington had given him to try and, and he's missing, and then there's the chase scene, and um, they end up, both, both him and Samuel, uh, the, the liaison, they both end up climbing up trees, and the lion starts coming up after him, Samuel dramatically tries to throw him the gun, and they miss, and the gun drops to the ground, and so right before the lion gets him, he jumps out of the tree and lands. And and I was watching that today. I'm like, oh, he broke both his knees. <laughs> I was watching that. I'm like, he he at least tore a meniscus. Um, I, like we said, I have I have quite the experience with that. Yeah, um, you know from experience. <laughs> <laughs> but that's all I could think today watching that. I was like, oh, he he tore something in both of those knees. He shouldn't have done that. Um, but yeah, he grabs the gun and the lion jumps down and it's the very dramatic Hollywood scene where the lion's coming down on him. He gets off the, the last shot and it's scrambling towards him one last time and his last bullet, he kills it. (sighs) And then you can breathe. Yeah, that's exactly what happens. Yeah. For me, it was a bit, I mean, clearly it didn't happen that way. I don't know how it really did happen, but, uh, you know, there's realistic ways to tell a dramatic story and then there's like over the top Hollywood stuff and, I don't mean to criticize it too much, but for me, it was a bit, it was a bit Hollywood. It was very formulaic Hollywood, like how you would, that's how you would write that scene. A Hollywood writer would write that scene. I mean, it's just, yeah. there's no way around it. Yeah. Yeah. You got, you got to keep it, things interesting. And, and that's one of our tropes here is it's in the script, you know, it doesn't make a lot of sense, but they kind of had to do it to, to keep things moving along. They have to have that MacGuffin kind of stuff going on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Well, you know. uh, now, before we uh, start to wind this down, I, I do want to just mention the um, the big uh, lion killer. He he killed a lion with his bare hands. That character. Oh yeah. Uh, who who did the big you know bear lion claws? Uh, Machina. Uh, yeah, he was pretty badass. I I really liked him as a character, and I was sad to see him be one of the one of the first victims of the lion. Mm-hmm. That was a that was such a great scene when they're walking up. It's uh, yeah, it's Patterson, Machina, the 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 big African foreman guy and, uh, and the priest and, you know, they're talking and, and you hear him say, Oh, I killed a lion too. Oh, but how many bullets did it take you? I used my hands, you know, makes that gesture. And that was just, it was a cool thing that they extended for those next few scenes until he got eaten and, and he didn't just get eaten. That was like another brutal scene. He got dragged out of his tent and like dragged for, it seemed like miles through the Serengeti and he's like, shredded to pieces and torn up and then the lion like I think they're describing what the lion did to him afterwards they like licked off his skin to drink his blood and of course they make you know the most private probably the most horrific death out of all of them and they you know make have to do something like that for the biggest toughest guy to you know it's like it's like uh it's like prison you know you gotta you gotta go in you gotta kill the biggest guy you gotta beat up the biggest guy in there to to prove you're the toughest right that's what the lions were doing yeah, that scene went on for so uh, long, I thought maybe he was going to survive it, and then he just ended <laughs> up getting brutally murdered. <laughs> so. they're like, they'll stop for a second, you're like, oh, he's going to make it. Nope, they're dragging him off. Oh, they stopped again. Oh, he's going to make it. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Then you see the vultures. Um, yeah, no, he was an awesome character. Yeah, and then uh, John does that claw thing at the end, right, or, or in response to uh, 
to Mahina earlier in the film, and then does he also do it at the very end when he finally kills the final lion, or am I kind of making this up in my head as I go along? I know he does it at the funeral. Yeah. But does I don't it? remember him no. doing it later. I don't know. I'll go along with it. I think sure. it'd be cool if he did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It'll be the actual anarchy cut of the movie. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'd, I'd recut this thing. Sure. <laughs> Uh, I th- you know, this is a pretty cool movie, and, and we're, we're probably at a point now where we can do our um, our ratings, so a brief description of your overall final impressions, and we do um, gold and black, or black and gold for our, you know, it's a good movie, black and red for it's a shit movie, and, and black and gray is kind of an in-betweener if, if we want to have a three-point kind of system. So what do you think? Oh, man, you're making me go first. You know what? From my part, I'm a sucker. Uh, I I can always find something something to like in any movie, so I'm totally hedging hedging my rating here. Um, but as a hunter, I will watch any movie about hunting, and I just enjoyed it. You know, it, it's there's definitely a lot of faults in it, but I really enjoy the movie. I like I like the characters. They're you know they're not always the most fully developed, but the characters that are in it I like. Uh, so I'm gonna I'm gonna give it uh, black and gold for me. All right, very good, very good. And uh, uh, just real quickly, what was the what was the reason that you wanted to do this one when when I approached you and said, hey, do you want to do a show with us? And uh, you had selected this movie, so just give us you know 30 seconds on that. Well, you know, we had talked about uh, you know I, I I'm a hunter, I run my own hunting podcast, and we had talked about doing something either hunting or country related, and we had we had done a few, and um, you know, I just I just always gravitated towards this movie even before I was interested in hunting or anything like that. And uh, I thought it was one that not a lot of people are aware of or maybe have heard of or seen the cover of, but just never watched. And so I thought it would be a a fun one, a unique one to do that that tied into uh, kind of my interest as well with the hunting. All right. Very good. So, uh, Robert, your rating and review here. Yeah. So this is a this is a 20 year old movie now, and I think it holds up fairly well. I mean, the special effects aren't super special, but it doesn't need a whole lot. It's a really standard movie, like we've said. Um, it is a historical movie, so you can't deviate too much from the story. So usually when there's a, you know, there's a plot and then there's a story, like what is the movie really about? What is it really trying to tell you? And I would say it's some kind of message about controlling your fear, but other than that, there's not a whole lot of, say, like character development or growth or anything like that. It's really just this is what happened, and are you entertained by that? And I was. I didn't expect a whole lot from this thing. I went into it very low expectations. I thought it was just going to be some crap fest, but <laughs> I was hooked from the get-go. Even with all the dumb things that happened in the movie that we've discussed, it was it was highly enjoyable and fully entertaining, a bit schlocky at times and bad scripty and whatever, but um, plenty to talk about. And, I yeah, black and gold, baby. I, I thought it was fun. Daniel? All right, very good. And speaking of schlocky, um, I, I noticed on the Wikipedia that Val Kilmer got a Razzie Award for Worst Supporting Actor for this for his performance in this one. <laughs> so it kind of plays into oh, it. I, I kind of feel like yeah. Val Kilmer, he, he's one of those guys who, um, no matter what he tries to do, you can always tell it's him, right? Like, uh, he doesn't have a <laughs> oh, lot yeah. of range. <laughs> right. No, well, I thought it yeah. He's... he's you can tell he's trying to do something different, but it's not super successful. And I, you know, he, in Top Gun, he's like the, the jock type Iceman guy. Uh, his best performance is probably Willow or Tombstone. Um, yeah, Doc Holliday. But those are still probably... oh, yeah. very much him, though. I mean, but uh, I'll give... yeah, I, I'm going to go. Oh, go ahead. Oh, no, I was going to say, I'll give him. I feel like he departed a little bit in Tombstone. Like, there was more of a. 
more of a character at least that he played in there versus just being himself. Uh, not huge departure, but continue. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, and Tombstone was a fun movie. I think that was uh, episode 26 for us. So that's actuallyanarchy.com slash 26. And then we just did Willow, which is uh, Kilmer doing Mad Mardigan. And that was episode 44. And uh, you know where to find that one. Uh, so that that was, uh, you know, that's our Val Kilmer fetish, man. It comes in threes, apparently. Uh, but I'm going to go super black and gold on this. I watched this with my wife um, back when we first talked about well, not first talked about, but uh, when we were talking about doing this, I think back in August, this was probably back before your hunting trip and, and consequent yep. uh, accident. Uh, so I, uh, she really enjoyed it. We uh, watched over the course of two nights. That's kind of what we do because we got two kids, and uh, by the time we get them to bed, we can only stay up for another hour or so uh, before we also have to go to bed <laughs> because they get up early, man. They are early risers. They're up at like 4.30, 5 o'clock every day, um, yeah, which will serve them well at some point in the future, but um, right now it's just kind of wearing me out, <laughs> I'll tell you that. Uh, <laughs> but I, I felt like this was a, uh, a really fun movie to watch, and um, uh, I, I also want to mention that this was an Amazon Prime movie, so I was able to watch it for free, but in order to get Robert to watch it, uh, I put it in our voodoo. Uh, it was on sale this month, so six ninety nine, I think, and uh, we, we sling for big voodoo now. It's this app that you can um, put your movies in if you have physical discs or you can buy them um, in Vudu. And it's just an easy way to share content. Um, I can I can automatically share with up to five people, I think. So Robert and I have access to the same library. And uh, I after watching it, um, it's, it's worthy of being in my collection. Like, I would watch this again. So I appreciate you bringing this one to our attention. I, I had seen <laughs> it way back when um, and hadn't thought about it again until you brought it up. So... That's my sort of. I think it's definitely one of those movies that a lot of people have seen and have just kind of forgotten about. It, you know, oh yeah, I watched that back when it, you know, first came out on VHS or something, and then that's about the extent of their experience with it. So, right, and and half half our audience just went, "What's VHS?" (laughs) Gosh, Uh, I've. I've, I have no idea if we've got uh, what our demographics are, but uh, hopefully, hopefully you guys know what we're talking about. There are these tapes that uh, have a spool and they turn and that plays in a VCR. <laughs> Physical Be media. kind, rewind. Anyway, oh, that's a movie I have as well. Jack Black, one of his early ones with most death. That might be a fun one to do. That's sometime. actually a really good movie too. I really like that movie. Well, we'd be more than happy to have you back, so it could be that one or uh, any of the other ones we've talked about. Uh, speaking of um, of you, why don't you tell our audience, you know, the 30-second elevator pitch on uh, your site and show and how to find out uh, more about you, how they follow you, what's the website and all that. Absolutely. Uh, you know, my name's Sam. I run Living Country in the City. You can find it at livingcountryinthecity.com. Um, generally, it's kind of, it's focused mostly around the podcast, but uh, really it's, uh, a hunting podcast uh, centered around new hunters, folks from the city who may be intimidating on getting into the outdoors, camping, hunting, fishing, uh, all of that. And a lot of it is just kind of chronicling my journey from being this little suburban kid and growing into uh, growing into a backcountry hunter. It's a lot of fun. Uh, I've talked to some amazing people um, and have a good time. Yeah, so you can find that at livingcountryinthecity.com. Uh, links to all the show notes pages there. You can search for Living Country in the City on Instagram or iTunes, Stitcher, any of the podcast platforms. All right, very good. So uh, and any closing remarks uh, from you, Robert? I just want to put a bug in everybody's ear about my upcoming T-shirt design line. Um, I've been working really hard these past couple weeks in developing my 
Liberty Line, and I'll be launching that within the next, I'd say probably the next two months. I've got a whole bunch of them in the tank, but when I launch, I want to have a good, strong showing. And, um, yeah, other than that, it's been uh, a lot of fun having Sam on. Welcome back anytime. Thanks for coming on and doing an episode with us. No, it was a blast. I uh, I don't I don't get to to be on the guest end of things too often, so uh, it's definitely a lot of fun. I'd love to come back. All right, awesome. Uh, so I just want to also let you know, Sam, that sometimes we do some additional bonus content for our Patreon supporters in our what we call Kathleen Turner Overdrive, where we do Alex Jones style. You know, we've got the documents, Return of the Frogs Gay. Uh, so after we wind this down, we might uh, stick around for a little bit and just hang out. Uh, but anyone uh, who's interested in that, you can support us on Patreon, so patreon.com slash readrothbard, uh, or you can find other ways to support us at actualanarchy.com slash tipjar. This episode, the show notes page, will be actualanarchy.com slash 45. Throwing a lot of dot-coms at everyone, but this is our episode on the ghost in the darkness with our new friend, Sam, from Living Country in the City, and uh, it was a really great show. Thank you very much for coming on, and I wish everyone else a good night, and we'll go into the overdrive. So peace out, homies. Peace out. <laughs> Woo! The Chipmunks. C H I P M U N K. We're the Chipmunks. Guaranteed to brighten your day. Do 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 do